Our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm just going to be reading one verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. These are the words of God. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's ask his blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, as we open and study your word today, we ask that you would use it to instruct us, convict us, strengthen, encourage us. Please bless this time as we seek to grow in our understanding of who you are and who we are to be as your sons and daughters. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a pleasure to be back with you this Lord's Day. I was looking back, it was last August I was here, so I guess August is the uh, month I get to come and and see all you folks again, so thank you for having me. But I want to start with a quick question to everybody. How many of you were tempted this week? Show of hands. Oh, good. So this should be applicable to most of you. Those of you who weren't tempted, I'll talk to you after. Um, So we constantly have to deal with temptation. It's ever-present, yet different for each of us. My temptations may not be your temptations, but as varied as they are, it is temptation that lures us to sin. We have faced temptation in the past. We'll face it in the future. We have fallen into it in the past. And it should be in our hearts to resolve to know victory over temptation in the future. I don't know about you, but when we come to the time of confession on the Lord's Day, I wish I could come one time and just say, Lord, it went well this week. I really don't have anything to confess. right? But it's never the case. And it's also rather wearisome um, that when we come to that time of confession and are reminded, um, at least I'm reminded, that it's basically the same stuff every week. Um, Sometimes progress is almost imperceptible. Confession is a time for us to look back and see the sin, acknowledge it, bring it before God, repent. But it's also time for us to say, next time I'm here, I want to come back with a shorter list. I want to come back with some victory and some triumph over those besetting or entangling sins. So it's a time for us to renew that covenant of obedience and a time for us to refocus to live according to God's word. And at that point, you might say, as I sometimes do, is it really possible? Really? I mean, temptation seems to be constant. It seems to be overwhelming. Is it, in fact, possible to be triumphant over temptation and sin? Doesn't it seem like Satan has some sort of sophisticated weaponry or methodology that transcends our ability to comprehend. Isn't he more powerful than we are? Aren't we sometimes confronted with temptations which are so subtle that we don't even see them? And isn't Satan wily enough? And isn't the system of operation in the world and through the flesh subtle and devious and deceitful enough so we're in it before we even know how it came? Furthermore, aren't our hearts so deceitful and desperately wicked that even at our best, We can't put up a proper guard. How can we possibly be encouraged then in the matter of dealing with sin when it seems to be so deceptive and so super powerful and so super orchestrated by an enemy of our souls? And we seem so vulnerable because of our flesh and because of the deceptiveness of our own hearts. Is it possible for us to really have victory? Well, I think we can answer that question. And I think we can answer all those questions out of this one verse, out of 1 Corinthians 10.13. And I think the answer is yes. 
So 1 Corinthians 10.13 again. It's a familiar text, and one that really I do hope is an encouragement to all of us as we contemplate our future and longing and desire for triumphant, holy living. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The promise of that verse is thrilling. No temptation is overpowering. Satan is not so powerful. Satanic operations are not so subtle. The flesh is not so weak. The human heart is not so deceived that we are necessarily a victim of temptation. In this verse, there are some principles that rise to the top. And if we can understand them, we can understand our path to victory. First of all, we must understand the means of temptation. Notice the verse, no temptation has overtaken you. So just stop right there. Very simply stated. Temptation wants to overtake you. It wants to dominate you. To put it another way, it wants to take control of you. Now we can understand this process by looking at the word temptation. It can be translated as test as well as temptation. And tests and temptations are really two sides of the same thing. Life is full of tests. Every test, every trial is a potential temptation. Temptation, this is, this is key. Temptation is an inward solicitation resulting from an outward test. Okay, life is full of those kinds of tests. Tests can be financial stress, financial setback. You're in the midst of a financial setback, and you say, I'm going to trust God for this. I'm going to believe the Lord for this. We're not going to cut things back. We're going to live frugally. We're going to budget. We're going to be faithful to our obligations. We're going to live on less and believe the Lord will provide. Right? You pass the test. If you say, how can I steal some stuff from my employer? How can I cheat on my income tax? How can I not pay what I owe to someone? Then you've moved to temptation. Because the external test has become an inward solicitation to evil. It could be a personal disappointment. You had expectations of someone. You didn't perform. You either accept that with a trusting heart, love them in spite of it, or you begin in your heart to feel animosity and bitterness. It could be unkindness. It could be mistreatment. It could be injustice. It could be a test of illness. It could be a test of injury. It could be a test of an unexpected disaster, the death, death of someone you love. It could be the test of thwarted plans. It could be the test of failure to accomplish something you've had, you dreamed of for a long time. Could be the test of facing a problem with no acceptable solution. Could be the test of a person or experience that gives you do an opportunity to do evil. These are the tests that make up life. And when they go inside, then they begin to solicit evil and they become temptations. Turn with me to James chapter one. James chapter one. And James just has a great explanation of this internal processing. Right? James one, verse thirteen. James talks about the fact that God is not involved in tempting anyone. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So that's very important. God does not bring about an inward solicitation to do evil in anyone's life. Right? He doesn't do that. So we go back to verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests, various trials. Same word. Because the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God sends the tests, but not the temptations. God will bring the outward test to produce patience and endurance and spiritual maturity. 1 Peter 5 says that after you have suffered for a little while, the Lord will make you perfect. So God allows the tests of life to make us strong, but God never brings them to 
inwards, inwardly solicit evil in our hearts. So you say, how does this happen? And then you go to verse 14. Right, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, by his own lusts. And when the lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good, perfect gift is from above. That's all God ever sends. God will bring the test for spiritual maturity and perfection. It's your own desires, your own lusts, what you desire to do that brings, that produces that solicitation to evil. Our victory then, I think, starts with understanding the means by which that temptation comes. It comes through the trials, tests, disappointments of life, which we all have all the time. So when things aren't going the way you want and you're facing a test, you have to remember that's the means by which temptation comes. That's when I'm susceptible to temptation. Your antenna should have gone up. Alarms and red flashing lights should be going off. So the second thing comes out of this verse, if we're going to experience the triumph that the verse promises, even against Satan and the weakness of our human flesh, we have to understand the nature of temptation. Verse 13, back in 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In a word, temptation, as to its nature, is human. It is human. It's not supernatural. It's not so powerful. It's not so unique that we have no way to resist it. Temptation is common to man. What that phrase really has to say, that is human. It's not so demonic that we become helpless victims. And it's the same for all of us. The temptations that come to me, the temptations that come to you, the temptations that come to someone in prominence or someone in obscurity, they're all the same. Same for all of us. We may have our peculiar besetting sins. We may have our susceptibilities to certain temptations over certain other ones. But we're all getting hit with what's common to all of us. It's just normal for a fallen humanist to have to deal with these things. It's another way of saying that the strength of temptation is limited by God. We are his creation. It's what's common to created man. Jesus experienced this because in Hebrews it tells us that he was in all points tempted just as we are. In his enduring temptation, he suffered the temptations that are common to man. That's why he's such a faithful and merciful high priest to whom we can go and know that he understands. Galatians 6.1 reminds us that when your brother is overtaken in a fault, restore him in love, considering yourself, lest you also what? Be tempted. What he's gone through could have easily have happened to you because temptation is common to all of us. It's just part of human life. So the means by which temptation comes to us generally is through the trials and tests of life, and the nature of temptation is not that it's some kind of supernatural power that's beyond us. It's simply coming on a common level. It's human. It's what we all experience. Third element in this verse is we must understand the extent of temptation. And this really follows closely to the last point. We must understand the extent of temptation. He says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So the encouraging thing, God knows you as an individual. Every single one of you knows you as an individual. And he has planned your life to be secure in Christ eternally. Therefore, he will never allow you to go into any kind of temptation which is more than you at any given point in your spiritual life can handle. The Lord never allows us, at the point of our spiritual development, to go through any temptation that is beyond our ability. 
He puts limits on the extent of the temptation. Doesn't mean it's easy, but there's a limit. There's a ceiling. There's a cap. There's a lid on what he will allow in the life of one of his own. And why does it say he does that? God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So, recap. Temptation comes to us generally through the tests and trials of life. The nature of temptation is what everyone else experiences, and God limits the extent to which we can be tempted. Well, those three things right there are encouraging. Those alone to give us the confidence to deal with the test. But that's not all. There's a final point. We have to understand the way out, the way out of temptation. He says, with the temptation, God will always provide the way of escape. There's always a path to victory. The Greek word says is, uh, means literally an exit. There's always an exit, always an escape hatch. There's always a way out. Well, what is it? He tells us. He says, God will, with the temptation, provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Wait, did you hear that? He wants us to be able to endure it. That means the way of escaping temptation is to go through it. Escape does not mean avoid. Exit does not mean turn around and go back. The exit is on the far side. You have to go through. The way out of temptation is to endure it as a trial and never let it become a solicitation to sin, which then would affect a sinful response. The way out is to take it as a test and trial and not internalize it so it begins to solicit sin. So you've been wronged. So you've been falsely accused. So you've been maligned and treated unkindly and unjustly. Accept it. Accept it with joy and you will endure it. And that's the way of escape. So someone has promised you something and they didn't fulfill it. And you had tied some of your greatest expectations to that promise. Accept it. Understand it. Acknowledge it. It's a trial. It's intended to strengthen your faith. And the way out is through it. Sustaining it as a test. Never letting it be turned into temptation to sin. That is how you endure. The Greek word for endure literally means to get under it and carry it. Usually we're looking for a quick and easy route, but the only way out is through it. You remain under it. You have to carry on, but you endure it as a test with the view that God is using us to bring about your maturity. So I want to just briefly talk about two ways of escape, two ways for us to escape the temptation and endure the test to go through. And those two are drawing near and running away. Drawing near and running away. The Bible gives us specific commands on how to draw near and how and when to run away and the reasons and benefits of both. So, let's look at those now. The Bible repeatedly tells us to come to God and that God will reciprocate. And we can do this because of Jesus, right? That the scripture that was read this morning, we have access because Jesus is our high priest. We have access to the Father through our elder brother, Jesus. Amazing in itself that we have access to Almighty God, right? Creator of the universe. But we are also able to draw near to him. Get close to him. Hebrews 10. Again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So within those verses, there's one main straightforward command. Draw near. Draw near. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants you to do. Look at these verses. There's, there's only one exhortation in that whole passage, right? Once you pull away all the defining and qualifying clauses and phrases in there, since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which we inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, draw near. Draw near to God. One simple, deep, high, holy, happy, seemingly impossible goal for us. Draw near. It's not hard for us to find out what he's saying because the writer of Hebrews talks about drawing near throughout the entire book. Here's three other occurrences in Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16, which, we, which was read earlier. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 7.25, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him for he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The great passion of the writer of Hebrews is that we draw near to God. That we come to his throne to find all the help we need. That we come to him confident that he will reward us with all that he is for us in Jesus. And this is clearly what he means here in Hebrews 10.22. Because verse 19 says we have confidence to enter the holy place where God dwells. So we have confidence to come to where God is. We can draw near. Are we? So the one command, the one exhortation that we have in this passage in Hebrews is to draw near to God. So what does drawing near to God do for us, though? Three things. First, God draws near to us. James 4, 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. It's not a one-way thing. We come closer together. And not only does he draw near to us, but then we can resist the devil, endure the test, and the devil will flee. Well, what could be better than that? That's what Adam should have done. Resisted the devil, and the devil would have fled. We are too much like Adam. That's why James has this exhortation here. Second thing is, we have a solid anchor in Jesus. Hebrews 6, 18-20, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Steadfast anchor for the soul. Solid. Hope based on Jesus. Who experienced everything that we experienced and yet without sin. A hope based not on what we can see or anything we're in the middle of, but based on the finished work of Jesus alone. Third, God gives us endurance. Right? Draw near, and he gives us endurance. Colossians 1, 9 through 11. And so we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Drawing near to God bears fruit, increases the knowledge of God, and strengthens you with all power for what? All endurance. Endure the tests. Say fine. How do I do that? Well, you know what the keys are. You do. And so I'll just briefly mention them here. First is meditating on the word. Psalm 119, starting in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Wait, what did it say there in verse 11? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin. When the test comes, you turn to the word of God. You have that storehouse of scripture. You don't listen to your own lusts. You don't listen to the arguments of your own heart. It'll conjure up all sorts of things. When the test comes, you turn to the word of God. You listen to that that you've stored up. But you can't stop and say, oh, this is a test. Where's my Bible? What's a good verse for that? Does this Bible have a concordance? The word has to be in your heart, right? So it pushes out those other desires. Secondly, you pray. You pray, that Jesus, you pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You turn to God, you cry out to him to, to not let this test become a temptation. But here's the thing. Unless you're drawing near already, unless you have that close, personal, intimate, constant relationship with God, Paul says, be constant in prayer, right? Then when the test comes, prayer won't be the first thing on your mind. You might say, oh, I can stand here with the sinners for a while, see what's going on. Alarm, alarm. No. So you have to be regular in prayer, constant in prayer, so that when a test comes, your first thought is, I need to take this to God. Third thing, take the shield of faith. Armor of God, right? He talks about the flame, fiery darts that are coming at you, right? Understand has, God has a purpose in those fiery darts, but that shield of faith is going to protect you. Trust God for that. And trust God that he has a purpose. And focus on Christ. He endured every temptation to the maximum, and you can turn to him and say, my high priest, right? My faithful high priest, you know what I'm going through. Strengthen me in this. I'm not going to go through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right? But you know that, and you know his responses to Satan cover all of these areas, right? He has the word. Praise. Simple. And we know these things. We do. And that's why I, it's a good reminder from time to time to come back and go, okay, what do, I, what do I need to be focusing on to have this victory? So when the test comes, we turn to the word. When the test comes, turn to the Lord in prayer. When the test comes, retain your faith in the purposes of God through the test. And when the test comes, look to Christ, the faithful high priest, who will nurture you through this test. There's no test that's more than we can bear. Remember that? There's no test that's more than we can bear. When we fall and the test becomes a temptation and the temptation becomes a sin, it's not that we're victims. It's that we made sin-filled choices. We chose not to turn to the word of God, but rather to listen to our own hearts, our own desires, and our own lust enticed us. 
We chose not to cry out to God and ask him to lead us away from this and deliver us from evil, maybe because we wanted to walk into it. We pursued it because we wanted the desires of our flesh to be fulfilled. We failed to trust that God had a divine purpose in the test, and we could enjoy the test not for its own sake, but for what it yields, right? That perfection that God promised. And, we, and maybe we walked in because we wanted the test to go away. And the test goes away if you give in. We turn away from God, perhaps even angry at him. And if we failed, it's because we took our attention away from Christ, the faithful high priest, and focused on something else. So sometimes you're near to God, faithful in the word, regular in prayer. And the spirit alerts you to danger. And the best thing you can do is flee. Just plain old run away. Matthew Henry says, in times of imminent peril and danger, it is not only lawful, but our duty to seek our own preservation by all good and honest means. And if God opens a door of escape, we ought to make our escape. Otherwise, we do not trust God, but tempt him. There may be a time when even those that are in Judea, where God is known and his name is great, must flee to the mountains. And while we only go out of the way of danger, not out of the way of duty, we may trust God to provide a dwelling for his outcasts. In times of public calamity, when it is manifest that we cannot be serviceable at home and may be safe abroad, providence calls us to make our escape. He that flees may fight again. Now, Matthew Henry, what he mentions there is from Matthew 24, where Jesus tells his disciples that when they see certain times, they need to head for the hills. They need to run. Don't go back and get your stuff. Just run. Another obvious example is David. David lived an exciting life. He had to flee repeatedly. He fled from Saul fled Jerusalem to escape Absalom. There was wisdom, and God had reasons for David fleeing, and it preserved David for the work God had for him. Jesus' family. Jesus' family ran away and went to Egypt. The angel of the Lord told them to run away, Matthew 2.13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God had plans for that child. I would argue that we don't take that admonition of Scripture seriously enough in a real physical sense. We don't run away enough. Running away is often thought as cowardly. But I think the reason there are so many people caught in ongoing habitual sin is they do not just get up and physically run away. Here's what I mean. We talk about our Christian walk. Right? We walk. We have a lot of references in Scripture to paths, which I don't think are all just symbolic. Here's a few from the Psalms. You make known to me the path of life. My steps have held fast to your paths. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs has 23 references to paths. Here we get crooked paths and where people lie and wait along the paths. We're on a path, walking, literally walking. We walk through life every day. We move through our day and encounter people and situations that we need to physically react to. There really are dark alleys we should not go down. There really are people we need to avoid. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's people 
you should avoid. When your Christian walk veers off the straight and narrow path and you start walking in the counsel of the wicked, and then you end up standing in the way of sinners, pretty soon you're just sitting in the seat of scoffers. So when you find yourself tempted to walk in the counsel of the wicked, or the test has started to seep in, sometimes the best thing you can do is flee. Get away. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. Just like David faced, he was facing death. Jesus' family was facing death. The Jews in Jerusalem that Matthew Henry was talking about were facing death. Do you feel that temptation is a matter of life and death? Or is that all just metaphor? When discussing temptation, we can't ignore the fact that we are in a real war. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but we do fight in a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle can have physical consequences. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's dangerous, and it's not just spiritual. The Bible gives us specific temptations that are so dangerous that we're told to run away. We're told to flee. First is 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Sexual sin is killing us. It's killing people killing our culture, killing the church, killing families. The pervasiveness of pornography and sexual perversions of all sorts is all around us and is overwhelming. The immoral culture is insidious and is luring many in to their death. And so how does Paul tell us to respond to that temptation? Run away. Don't walk. Run. It's dangerous. I mean, our best example of this is Joseph in the Old Testament, right? I'm hoping that came to mind for you from Genesis 39. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There's a test, and Joseph knows that if that goes in, that comes out as sin. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. The test didn't stop for him, day after day. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He just up and ran away. It's not that he was scared of her, right? This is a guy whose own brothers conspired to kill him. They threw him in a pit without water. They sold him to traders who took him down to Egypt, where he was sold on a slave market, right? He's a tough guy, but he knows that when the temptation gets really strong and reaches out to grab you, you have to get away. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts, run away. Don't hang around to see what will happen. It's a test, and it's okay to bolt. What will happen if you don't? Well, Proverbs 7 tells us. 
Verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him, and with a bold face she says to him, I perfume my bed. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. With much seductive speech she persuades him. Then verse 22. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into the snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Cost him his life. Serious danger. Like active volcanoes, oncoming traffic, snakes. We're supposed to flee the things that can kill us. Sexual immorality can kill you. The end of Proverbs 7. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Paths again. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. The number she has killed are many. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Danger. Flee. Physically move your feet in the opposite direction. No matter what it is, if it's a device that you have, if it's someone you know, if it's a friend, you need to put safeguards in place so that you're not chasing the wrong things. When you're tempted to sin, make a change physically. But it's not just sexual sin. Anything that we lift higher than God in our minds is just as dangerous. Our opening verse again, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. right? No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then 1 Corinthians ten fourteen, right after that verse, notice what comes next. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Right, so this is 1 Corinthians. Paul's in the middle of a whole thing about eating meat, sacrificed to idols, this whole thing. So he says, flee from idolatry. Are you worshiping something other than God? And the Corinthians had their particular thing. We all have our particular things. Career, money, friends, hobbies. You think putting something ahead of God isn't dangerous? The examples in the Bible are too numerous. We could be here for days. Just a couple. Start with the golden calf. 3,000 died for worshiping that one. It's fatal. Prophets of Baal, after deciding to have a contest with Elijah, 450 slaughtered after they lost. And whole nations. I want to read 2 Kings 17. You can turn there if you want to read along. 2 Kings chapter 17. It, these are the Israelites. These are God's chosen people. And listen to how the idolatry goes for them. And you could pick so many examples throughout the life of Israelites, right? Just go through Judges. And, but this is just, it's, it's amazing. Starting at verse 6, 2 Kings 17, 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozon, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. 
They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants and prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them in the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Wow. Any wonder the admonition from Paul to flee idolatry? You put something ahead of God, God will cast you out of his sight. It does not end well when you worship something or someone in place of the one true God. Paul also tells Timothy to run away from something. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So what things? So he just says, flee these things. So back to 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's saying flee from the love of money. Storing up riches on earth just to have more stuff. God's people should not set their hearts on the things of this world. It's dangerous. So I want you to think of fleeing. I want you to think of running away. When the temptations of money or sexual immorality or worshiping anything that takes your eyes off God happens, there should be movement away from that. Movement away from those tests lest they become sin. Now, there are examples in the Bible where people hear things like this and they say, well, then I'll just run away from God. Right? That's what I'll do. I want to chase my desires. I don't want to listen to God. I'm out of here. Well, beware. Adam and Eve tried to hide. Jonah, you know, tried to run away. Didn't end well for them. And God will bring his judgment. Then you end up running like the kid who's about to get a spanking. And Isaiah the prophet tells what happens to those who try to flee from the judgment of God. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in a snare. Right? It's just, I, you picture so many movies, right? Somebody's being chased by something. 
Somebody is trying to kill them, big dinosaur, whatever. What always happens? They trip. They fall. They fall into a pit. They get up. They fall again. But, and we're back to this walking again, right? But if you're walking with God, if you draw near to God and you use wisdom in knowing when to run away, then Proverbs 3 will describe you. Proverbs 3, 21 through 26. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely. No tripping and falling because you're trying to run away, run away from God's judgment, and your foot will not stumble. And you're not running away from God's judgment because you're using the wisdom and discretion, right? You've drawn near to God. You know when you need to run away, when there's something really dangerous. You will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. You know why? Because you're not walking with them. Right? So you have nothing to be afraid of. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. You won't get caught in those snares. You won't because you're walking with the Lord. The devil wants us to believe lies. Scripture tells us the truth. The devil whispers, God is stingy. Proverbs 84.11 tells us he's good. The devil tells us sinful pleasures are filling and fulfilling. Hebrews 11.25 tells us they're fleeting. The devil tells us this sin is private. No one will know. Psalm 51.4 says God sees... God sees it all. Satan says sexual sin is harmless. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-6 tells us it affects others. Satan says it will be easy to turn back. Just do it this one time. You can always turn back. Hebrews 3.13 tells us that sin hardens our hearts. The devil whispers you're defined by your sin. You're not. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of us. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified by the blood of Jesus. Giving into temptation may temporarily offer some perceived contentment, but will never leave us with the fullness we find in Christ. Temptation will always leave us empty and hungry for more, and will harden our hearts. The deceptions foster temptation. Deception, temptation looks good, but it's not good for us. Acknowledging the lies helps us turn from the temptation back to the truth. See the test for what it is. See the test that you'll run into this week for what they are, something to strengthen and perfect you. Run from the enticement. Endure the test. Be faithful. Find the exit. Go through. God is truly the one who satisfies the soul. God will always be better. Always. Every good gift comes from him. He was better in the garden. He was better than the Israelites chose golden calf to worship. 
He is better than more money. He is better than fame, pride, greed, gossip, sexual immorality, social media, anything else we can add to the list. God is better than all of it. And he's proven himself to be. He's proven himself to be so many times in each of our lives. And yet, when the test comes, we are lured by our own lusts and desires to turn away. Sin and idols, though, have proven themselves to fail us again and again. You will be tested again and again. Draw near to him. Flee from temptation. Those are the ways of escape. When you encounter a test and you start to think, maybe this is better, remember. Remember Psalm 107.9. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Jesus we have access to you, that we can draw near and find strength and hope and courage. We know you bring us tests to refine us. We thank you for the example of our elder brother, Jesus, and that we can look and see that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. What an encouragement. May we be people that are prepared to face the tests you have for us, steeped in your word and in prayer. Sanctify us through the tests that we encounter and preserve us through it all. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.